Good morning. I uh, read this morning in my Bible reading. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. And it's not very often that I get to be on that side among the congregation. So today was especially a gift for me because I am glad to be a part of a church that loves God and is making known his deeds to one another. So thank you for your passionate singing that reminds us of that. Please turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 20. It was midway through my sixth grade year at Valley Middle School when one day after PE class I was getting changed by the lockers and I found myself suddenly in the shadow of a fellow classmate of mine who stood me up, pushed me into a locker, and then forcefully brought his fist upon my face. My confusion did not last long because I was overcome by something else. It was quick, unforeseen, and sudden. There became a strong urge in me that was not there seconds before to stand in front of my attacker, look him in the face, and not punch him in the face. Maybe it was because Matt Rossum was a fairly thick fellow in comparison to my inferior, late-blossoming teenage frame, but there was a discernible passion that I still remember that overwhelmed me in that moment. I did not punch him back. I did, however, lift my right foot into the center of his pants (laughs) with force, and down went Rossum. I'm sure there are many here who've been in a situation where the bell has rung, the first punch is thrown, and it's on. Could be for many reasons, sports, frustration, or, or putting up with a bully. But there are times when a passionate response to protect yourself is required. Now, the story I just shared is on one side of a spectrum, but imagine the context being much different. Imagine a father standing in his kitchen and looking up to see an intruder next to him with the intent of doing much harm. And imagine as that father takes the first punch to the face, his eyes being drawn to the dining room table just feet away where his two young, innocent children, whom he loves intensely, are eating their breakfast. If Matt Rossum were the intruder of that house, he would be on the receiving end of a much different takedown than the one I gave him because the response of a loving father whose treasured possession is threatened is not only right, but it is fiercely committed. When there are threats or dangers present towards the possessions or people whom we love, we are passionately responsive. And that is exactly what we see of God as he gives the second commandment to his people. So I invite you to stand with me as if you are physically able, as we read Exodus 20, 4 through 6. This is God's holy and authoritative word that communicates his passionate heart for his people. You shall not make for yourself a carved image 
or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. God bless the preaching of his word. You may be seated. This morning we behold an intensity of God's passionate love for those whom he has redeemed in a way that not only engenders security in his people, but also ignites a passionate response of love to him. In Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6, we see God is passionately particular and protective of the exclusive devotion of those he has redeemed. He's passionately particular and he's passionately protective of the worship of his people. His people whom he brought out of the land of their enslavement. His people who he brought close to himself. And it's in the first and greatest commandment that God addresses the object of their worship You shall have no other gods before me, Exodus 20, verse 3. The one true unrivaled God is the only one worthy of his people's exclusive devotion. There is no other. But God is not only concerned about the object of their worship, but the manner in which they worship him. The how matters just as much as the who, and this is what God addresses in the second commandment, verses 4a and 5a, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now, the original audience hearing Yahweh's voice thunder forth had a fairly strong framework for the words being spoken to them here. For the majority of their lives, They were witnesses to the public and pervasive worship of false gods that permeated the land of their bondage in Egypt. And along with that, they were also very familiar with created images of these false gods worshipped by their previous captors. And this worshipping of false gods will only become more commonplace as they continue on into the land promised them. Through the smoke and fire, What God is making crystal clear to his people, whom he has redeemed, is his intense intolerance for idolatry. And idolatry, as 18th century theologian Charles Hodge says, consists not only in the worship of false gods, but also in the worship of the true God by images. While the first commandment forbids God's people from worshiping false gods. The second commandment forbids them from worshiping the only God, true God, in the wrong way. 
The second commandment addresses the manner in which God's people are to worship him. And the manner in which God is worshipped matters to God. God is passionately particular about how he is worshipped. And we see that in the far-reaching parameters of the restriction he gives in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. God's people are prohibited from making any image in the form of any created thing, to represent God. Absolutely, unquestionably, no creating of images from creation for the purpose of worshiping God. To do so would be false worship. To do so would be to offend God. To think that one can create an image of God using something seen in this world for the purpose of worshiping Him is not only foolish, but it is forbidden. John Calvin commenting on why such a strong prohibition of creating images writes, A true image of God is not to be found in all the world, and hence his glory is defiled and his truth corrupted by the lie whenever he is set before our eyes in a visible form. Therefore, to devise any image of God is in self impious because by this corruption, His majesty is adulterated, and he is figured to be other than he is. God is most passionate about his glory, his glory seen, his glory revered. So it is of utmost importance for God to be known and adored for who he is and not by something he is not. God cannot be localized into any physical form. And in Isaiah 40, verse 25, the Holy One speaks, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him? Depicting God through created images falls infinitely short of who he is and thus distorts his glory. Philip Philip Ryken highlights this breach when he writes, This was the problem with idolatry all along. It created a false false image of God that was inadequate to his deity and unworthy of his majesty. God is infinite and invisible. He is omnipotent and omnipresent. He is a living spirit. Therefore, to carve him into a piece of wood or stone is to deny his attributes, the essential characteristics of his divine being. An idol makes the infinite God finite, the invisible God visible, the omnipotent God impotent, the all-present God local, the living God dead, and the spiritual God material. Thus, the whole idea of idolatry rests on the absurdity of human beings trying to make their own image of God. An idol is not the truth, but a lie. It is a God who cannot see, know, act, love, or save. Created images misrepresent the creator God, depicting him as something he is not, belittling his godness, thus dishonoring him, therefore forbidden. 
Another second commandment is not a prohibition of, of merely making things. Artistry or any form of craftsmanship is not what is being forbidden. And we see that because very soon in the, uh, the, the later parts of Exodus, we see that there is much detail and description given to the construction of the tabernacle. But it does forbid the creation of anything of the one whom we worship for the purpose of aiding in worship of him. But images do something more than just misrepresent God. Images mislead the thoughts of his people, conveying to our minds false ideas about God, thus making our worship to him uninformed and unacceptable. If the only way to break the second commandment were to go and turn a piece of metal into a cow, then just stay away from a welder. But what God addresses in his people and us today goes so much deeper than just the forging of metal. We not only sin with our hands, we sin with our minds and our hearts. Inspiration for fashioning such an image like a golden calf doesn't just fall out of the sky. It needs to be thought of first. Artists here, you know that creating something, creation begins with envisioning it. Metal images are the expression of mental images. To create an image of the invisible God through created things starts with creating an image of the uncreated God with the created imagination. And that is a big deal because it's a way that we can seek to bring God down to our level. The language used in the second commandment should catch your attention. Words like image and likeness. It echoes God's language used in creation. And it is with the framework of creation that makes the, bre the breaking of the second commandment so tragic. Creature made in the likeness of God. Making God in the likeness of creature. In the second commandment, God is not only concerned about his people adopting the practices and rituals of the surrounding pagan nations, for his covenant people then and for us right now, the, this prohibition addresses the impulse and the actions of worshiping God in your own preferred way. And while we are not as vulnerable as the Israelites, Israelites were to creating physical images to worship God, because that's all they had ever known, I'm sure none of you are going to go home and whittle something out in the woodshop, we can be guilty of breaking this second commandment when we fail to think God's thoughts after him. I love this quote. J.I. Packer writes, How often do we hear this sort of thing? I like to think of God as the great architect or mathematician or artist. I don't, I don't think of God as a judge. I like to think of him simply as a father. We know from experience how often remarks of this kind serve as the prelude to a denial of something that the Bible tells us about God. It needs to be said with the greatest possible emphasis that those who hold themselves free to think of God as they like are breaking the second commandment. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. He has said to us, I am who I am, which means he is not what we imagine him to be. God is to be worshipped in the way that he prescribes. So praise him. 
God has not left our knowing of him up to our fallen imaginations, nor has he revealed himself to us through vision, but through his voice. Listen to what Moses says when he reviews with the second generation what took place on that day. Deuteronomy 4.12. Then the Lord spoke to you out, out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on that day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire. Beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves. The people of God understood who the unseen God was, not because he had shown himself to them in visible form, but because they heard his voice. Therefore, God forbids them from constructing any visible symbol of God. Simply obey his voice. And just like them, we live in a land filled with images of God's worshipped. And just like them, we are to worship our God in a distinctly different way. Faith comes through taking God at his word. Not by seeing images, not through imagination. Our God is passionately particular for the exclusive devotion of his people, and so he speaks. And his speaking is always sufficient to knowing him and worshiping him. Aren't you glad that God speaks to you freely and clearly and personally through his word? To know God is to take him at his word. And to take God at his word is to know him. So beware of any impression in you that thinks, I need something more than what God has spoken in his word to know him and to worship him. Obey the second commandment. God is passionately particular about how his people worship him. And he's also passionately protective of their exclusive devotion devotion to them, him as their redeemer. God follows the second commandment by giving the reason for the command. Exodus 20, verse 5b. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. The prohibition in verse 4 is, is grounded in this divine reality. God is a jealous God. Now, we have to acknowledge the word jealous holds negative connotations in our minds. The, the places we are maybe most familiar with this word appearing in our Bibles is usually in the midst of a long list of sinful attitudes. And, and when we look at the world, we see evidence of jealousy in irrational anger and deceitful tactics. And yet, though jealous is maybe not in our top ten list of attributes for God, jealous is how God describes himself to the people at Mount Sinai. This is one of the first attributes he discloses about himself to them for his glory and their good. And it is this attribute that he anchors the second commandment by. So how is it then that our good and perfect God, as one of his divine perfections, be jealous? In most contexts, jealousy is used to describe a desire to get something that doesn't belong to you. 
He was jealous of his brother's wealth. But if something does belong to you, there are times when it needs to be protected. And according to Isaiah 48.11, there is something that belongs to God alone that is of the utmost importance for him to protect. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will give to not to another. God will not have any rivals to his fame. No, he is most concerned to protect the honor of his name. He is passionate about it. His pleasure is for it. Zealous for it. Jealous for it. He is a jealous God. It is good and it is right that he is. D.A. Carson commenting on the jealousy of God says, But for God not to be jealous of his own sovereign glory and might would be a formidable failure. He would be disowning his own unique significance as God, implicitly conceding that his image bearers have the right to independence. God is jealous of the greatness of his glory as God, and is therefore also jealous of his people's exclusive devotion to him as their God. It is a great comfort and security that God is jealous for his people that he has redeemed. His jealousy is not like our jealousy. God's God's jealousy is not a mood swing that might get the best of him, spinning him out of control. One commentator helpfully illustrates this by writing, Godly jealousy is not the insecure, insane, and possessive human jealousy that we often interpret this word to mean. Rather, it is an intensely caring devotion to the objects of his love, like a mother's jealous protection of her children, a father's jealous guarding of his home. Or as Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright says, jealousy is God's love protecting itself. The divine jealousy of the Lord is a passionate devotion to protect a loving relationship He is jealous, passionately protective of the relationship he has with those he has brought out of slavery to himself. And he does not want anything or anyone to distract or endanger this exclusive relationship. He is earnestly committed to it. It is always on his mind. He's not indifferent to it or aloof to the well-being of his people's exclusive devotion to him. And he is stirred and moved with a holy jealousy to take action against any threat. He is intolerant of rivals and idolatry provokes his jealousy. He will not share his glory with anyone or anything else and so he will not share the exclusive claim he has on a people he has saved by by his grace, for the praise and honor of him as their God. They are his treasured possession, whom he loves, and he is zealous to protect them. They are his people, his people, once enslaved, but never again. He will not allow his people to go back into enslavement to another God. He has said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, with all his heart and with all his soul. He will shield and preserve and guide his people securely to himself. Our God is a jealous God. And so he passionately protects our worship of him. He is jealous. 
or zealous for the well-being and worship of those he has redeemed. He is jealous, so he loves so intensely. He loves so intensely, and so he is jealous. And his jealousy is expressed in this text through both a warning and a promise. Exodus 25c gives a warning. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Since God is passionately protective of the worship of his people, their obedience to him and trust in him, their well-being and their future, God's jealousy is, is expressed in his righteous anger towards anything that might threaten this exclusive marriage. God will not overlook anything that displeases him. He, he does not sweep sin under the rug. He is just and justifiably so. And God is jealous and so he gives this warning to his people. A warning which is such, this is such a kindness of God. The divine jealousy of the Lord is a passionate devotion to protect this covenant relationship or to avenge it when it is breached. One Old Testament scholar is helpful to explain this when he writes, the intensity of his wrath at threats to this relationship is directly proportional to the depths of his love. It arises out of the profundity of his covenant love. Because he feels so deeply, he must respond vigorously. This warning is a gift to us because it reveals to us the measure of the Lord's jealousy, which is an expression of his love for us. Because he loves and feels so deeply for the exclusive devotion of his people, he must respond so vigorously when that relationship is at risk. Do you feel that? Do you feel the weight of God's love for you as his child when he warns you in his word? This warning in our text is not merely just about idolatry being wrong. It is from the heart of the one who feels so deeply about the well-being and devotion of those he has called to himself. For he knows, he knows better than anyone else that idols cannot save and will not satisfy and will inevitably leave you broken. The warning in Exodus 20 verse 5c shows us that there are generational consequences for those who obey or disobey this commandment. One of the, the tragic aspects of sin the Bible's full of this, is that our sin, my sin, can have damaging effects upon others. Now, personal responsibility is required in each generation. So God is just and he judges each individual according to their individual sin. Ezekiel 18.20 makes this clear. It says, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. So this warning in our text this morning dismisses any notion that God punishes innocent children for their father's sin. You cannot blame your sin elsewhere. But 
The Lord is a jealous God who must respond vigorously to covenant unfaithfulness. So those he punishes according to this warning are those who hate him. And in this context, it is both fathers and their offspring. It is not that the fathers are guilty and the children are innocent. The children hate God as much as their fathers because they have been raised in such a way and have had modeled for them all their lives that idolatry is acceptable and right. And thus they've refused to worship the invisible God in the way that he is prescribed, thus hating him. I think there are some applications to specific groups of people here. And first I want to address... There are many in this room, those who've experienced the adverse effects of their father's sin. And in God's providence, how we are raised has had an effect on who we are today. You might be one who holds bitterness or resentment or hatred towards those who raised you. Or abandoned you? Know this. That apart from the divine mercy of God acting upon your souls, you would most likely be the same way. So praise our redeeming God who's brought you out of the house of slavery and to himself. God is passionately jealous about his love for you. So you need not blame the pain you've experienced on account of those who've sinned against you. Walk in the new way that God has opened to you. Also, this warning should especially catch the eye of fathers as it highlights their particular responsibility of discipling their families unto the Lord. To the fathers in this room and potential fathers in this room, you have a responsibility laid upon you by God to worship him exclusively and passionately. And this is not just for the integrity of a family specifically, but also for the integrity of a family corporately. The exclusive devotion of fathers unto God will have an effect on the public display of the worth of God in the church to the world and to your children. God is jealous about this. And so he gives this sober warning. Do not lead your family astray because of a nagging apathy towards God. Teach your children a holy devotion through humility and a life of submission to God and his ways. Even mindful this morning, sing passionately to God with all your heart and all your soul so that when your, your children, even who are too young maybe to understand, see, God, see their, their fathers love God and hate evil. Leave a legacy behind to your children and grandchildren that is unmistakably zealous for God. Do, do you feel the weight of that calling? If so, praise him. It is God's grace to you to be passionately protective of what your children set their eyes upon and fill their ears with and to fight against what might threaten their exclusive devotion to the only God. 
if you who are evil are passionately committed to this for your children, how much more is God this way to his? And we see that in the promise he gives. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Notice here, the promise, the promise given here in our text is so much more powerful than the warning because the blessing of this promise lasts not for three or four generations, but for a thousand generations, meaning to the end of all generations. In effect, forever. God's passion to bless is so much greater than his passion to punish. And the jealousy of God expressed through this warning and this promise is meant to impress upon all his children, not just the far-reaching effects of disobedience to him, but the far-reaching effects of obedience to him. It, It moves us. It moves us in a direction. We are meant to feel the personal and passionate devotion of our jealous God for his people in these verses. Do you feel the way he feels for you? His love is exclusive and it is passionate and it is personal. And he leaves no doubt. For while the invisible God revealed himself to his people at the foot of a mountain, not by images, but by words, God has revealed his glory to us in a much more profound way. The Apostle Paul says in the beginning of his gospel, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's Father's side, he has made him known. Through the mystery and the humility of the incarnation, Jesus, the Son of God, reveals the glory of the one who could not be seen at Mount Sinai. Jesus, the radiance of the Father's glory, reconciles us to the Father through his sinless life and his substitutionary death on the cross so that those who have worshipped idols and those who stir up the jealousy of God might worship the true and only God in the right way. Our God is a jealous God who is passionately particular and protective of the exclusive devotion of his people. So much, so much that he gave his only son. Have you beheld the glory of the image of the invisible God? If so, worship him freely and passionately and exclusively. For Jesus, the Son of our jealous God, has said, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Let's pray. What grace, O God, what abundance of your kindness we've been recipients of this morning and that we are we've had available to us each day that you communicate yourself your righteousness 
justice, your godness, and your very pleasure and heart to us through every word that you've spoken in Scripture. Thank you that we have these commands that lead us to this throne of grace. Thank you that we have these commands that are right and are steering us to love you more and to trust you more. Thank you, God, that you have not left us in the brokenness, not just of physical slavery like the Israelites, but you've broken the bonds of our chains to enslavement, to idolatry. And we now, by your Spirit, live in a new way, a new way that has been opened to us through Jesus, the radiance of your glory, the image of the unseen God, the one who displays for us and shows to us and makes known to us in all its fullness your mercy and your kindness towards sinners. Thank you that we can worship you, the one who could not be seen. We can know you and worship you in the way that you have made available to us in your Son. Father, forgive us of our apathy. Our lukewarmness. Forgive us of when we do not feel the immense depths of what you feel for us. Oh God, thank you that you are passionately particular and protective of our worship to you as God. And so fan that into flame. Fan that into flame in this church, in the lives of the, the people of Emmaus Road Church, the, the fathers and the mothers who are discipling children to live exclusively to you. Fan that into flame so that we might be a people passionate for your name in every aspect of our lives. Do this. In Jesus' name, amen.